Our call to worship this morning is from John 11, verses 25 and 26. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? We turn now to the New Testament and continue reading in the Word of God. Luke chapter 24, we'll read verses 1 through 35. 1 through 35. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and certain others with them. And they found this stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words, and returned from the sepulcher, and told all all these things unto the eleven, and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Then arose Peter and ran unto the sepulcher, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened, and it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holdened that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And the one of them whose name was Cleopas answering said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto him, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. Beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. When they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it, even so as the women had said. But him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things 
and to enter into his glory. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way? And while he opened to us the scriptures, and they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. May God bless the reading of his holy and life-giving word. Beloved, our text for this morning is from Luke 24, verses 25 and 26. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Well, on Friday evening, our focus was on the last moments of the Lord Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross, his last words, where he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. We saw there that those words were full of anticipation, where Jesus in faith placed his his life in the hands of his Father. Faith that was looking beyond death to the resurrection. And this morning we come again to the Word of God and we find that the Father is indeed faithful. The Lord Jesus Christ is alive. His faith has sustained Him through death. His Father has raised Him up again. The grave is empty. But His disciples are in consternation. What in the world is happening? The first verses of Luke 24, we see the reaction of the disciples of the women as they come to the empty tomb. Let me highlight the reactions of the followers of Jesus that resurrection morning. Verse 4, we read, they were much perplexed. They were puzzled. Questions abound. Verse 5, they, they were afraid. And verse 8, the angels reminded them of the words of Jesus, and then they remembered His words. And as the women remembered his words, that was the turning point for them in their understandings, in their responses 
to the resurrection because in verses 9 and 10 we read that they went to the disciples and they told that Jesus was alive. But then we read in verse 11 that those who heard that news were skeptical. Even the disciples were skeptics in those moments. What the women told them seemed as idle tales in verse 11. They believed them not in verse 11. And then Peter goes to the empty grave and he, he stoops down and he looks into the grave. He's wondering in himself. There's, there's questions as he sees the empty grave. And then these travelers to Emmaus. Jesus comes alongside them in verse 17 and he says, why are you sad? Their hearts are full of gloom and sadness. Verse 25, he rebukes them as fools and slow of heart to believe. Not a very good track record of response, is it? To the resurrection. A day that should have been marked by joy in the church. The first day that Jesus Christ arose. You see all these responses. Skepticism. Unbelief, questions, sadness, foolishness. What was at the heart of these misunderstandings? What was at the heart of the foolishness of these travelers to Emmaus? The angels hit on it. In verses 6 and 7, remember how He spake unto you. The angels had to bring to mind the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had forgotten the word of Christ. They misunderstood the word of Christ. As we see in the misunderstandings of these travelers to Emmaus. They were operating with selective portions of Scripture and, and leaving off other portions of Scripture. They did not have the whole picture of all that the prophets had spoken about Christ. That was the point of Jesus' rebuke, O oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And so Jesus comes alongside these travelers to Emmaus. He appears to His disciples again and again to correct their misunderstandings, to bring them to a fuller understanding of the Scriptures, and to bring them into that place of joy and understanding of what the resurrection meant for them. And He does the same with us this morning, doesn't He? And so we have before us this morning a resurrection message for fools. A resurrection message for fools. Well, it's not a very uplifting sermon title, is it? It's not very flattering to us. You might even feel a little offended. Why fools? Because that's how Jesus addresses these travelers. That's how He addresses us this morning. 
We haven't arrived yet, have we? In our knowledge of the Scriptures and our understandings of what the resurrection means for us. None of us have attained to the perfection of knowledge. We still face the challenge of doubt and unbelief. We find ourselves very much in the place of these disciples. In the place of the women, in the place of these travelers to Emmaus, there's still questions that linger, aren't there? We still face misunderstandings about the person of the resurrected Christ, about the Word of God, about the significance of the resurrection. And even if we understand these things, our knowledge is still imperfect. How often don't we operate on the basis of our own understandings? We forget the Word of God. Or we misunderstand the Word of God and we apply it one way when God meant for us to apply it this way. Or we we take one portion of Scripture and that's where we fixate and we, we rest there. And we get this stunted knowledge of who Christ is. Well, here Christ comes this morning. He accurately addresses us as fools. Let's see how He deals with such fools as He breaks into the world of these travelers, as He breaks into our world this morning with the Word of God to set us straight again. In the first place, we see the misunderstandings. The misunderstandings. We operate with misunderstandings much the same as these travelers do, and so we walk with them. They're traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus, deep in conversation with each other. In one sense, this is positive. They're conversing with each other about Christ. But the things that had happened in Jerusalem, they're, they're talking about it. There's no better subject to be talking about than Christ. They're trying to come to an understanding. That's what Christian fellowship does, doesn't it? To come to a, a better understanding of who Christ is. Verse 14, they talk together of all these things which had happened. In verse 15, we read that this was no ordinary conversation they were having together. They were reasoning things out. They were trying to get their minds and hearts around what had happened in Jerusalem during these days. In verse 17, Jesus hits on their their difficult conversation. What manner of communications are these that you have one to another as you walk and are sad? So they were talking about these things, but their conversation wasn't really uplifting. It was, it was rather saddening because they couldn't get through the conundrum that they were facing. Their, their conversation is, is permeated with grief and sadness. It seems rather hopeless as they're traveling away from Jerusalem, from the center of these events back home, a sense of defeat. We just don't get it. They're trying to put all the events together, trying to piece it all together. It only left them sad and and hopeless. They have no grid through which to interpret these events and to make sense of these events. The death of Christ leaves them sad. The message that the grave was empty 
And Christ had disappeared, had left them sad. Even though the women had said he was alive, yet they were operating with the evidence that they had in front of them. The grave is empty. We haven't seen him. Easter morning did not feel like Easter morning should. Instead of hearts bursting with joy, they were filled with sadness and and gloom because their hopes that they had tied to Christ were dashed. Beloved, how do you face the message of the empty tomb this morning? With joy and gladness? Or with gloom and sadness? Are you lacking a grid this morning through which to interpret the empty tomb? Are you forgetting the Word of God this morning? Does that permeate your life with with sadness and grief? Because you're not seeing Christ as you ought to from all of the Scriptures. Are you operating on the basis of misunderstanding? Tossed to and fro on this emotional roller coaster of feelings and experiences unregulated by the Word of God because that's ultimately how these travelers were operating. They were fools. We'll see later what it means to be a fool. But they had forgotten the Word of God in these moments. And their misunderstanding is revealed in their conversation and their sadness. But it's drawn out also through Christ's compassion, isn't it? Their misunderstanding. How does Jesus deal with these, these gloomy travelers to Emmaus? We read in verse 15 that Jesus enters into their world on that road to Emmaus. He walks with them. Isn't that like Jesus? To come alongside and to walk with His disciples. To bring them into greater knowledge of the truth. He doesn't forsake them. We read in verse 15, Jesus Himself drew near and went with them. He's interested in their conversation. He marks their emotions. It's compassion from the heart of the risen Lord. In verse 16, we read that their eyes were holden, that they should not know Him. Jesus powerfully restrains their physical sight somehow. So they can't recognize who Jesus is. They cannot perceive that it was Him. Why would He do that? Well, Jesus limits their physical perception so that He might grow their spiritual perception of who He is. Compassion. Even as He limits their perception. To lead them deeper into the mysteries of of the truth of the gospel and of the scriptures. Then in verse 17, Jesus draws them out with a simple question. What manner of communication are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? He reads their emotions and acknowledges them. He wants to know from their own lips what is bothering them. 
Cleopas responds to Jesus' question with a measure of frustration. Are you alone? Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? Are you the only stranger there that has not heard of these things? Jesus draws them out further and he says, What things? What things? And then the misunderstandings pour forth from these troubled hearts. Compassion draws out a troubled heart. That's how Jesus deals with with gloomy hearts this morning, with sad hearts. Jesus draws out their misunderstandings, not because He doesn't know what they are, but because He wants them to vocalize their misunderstandings so He can deal properly with them. Isn't that true that when you hear yourself saying something, it suddenly clicks? You can be thinking something. And it doesn't just, it just, just doesn't click in your mind, but as soon as you hear yourself saying it, then it, you get that aha moment. That's why Jesus is drawing them out. Not just so they can think about their problems, but they can vocalize and they can say what they're feeling. And then Jesus has words to work with as he's walking with them. This is the stroke of the master counselors, counselor drawing out troubled hearts before providing solutions and remedies. Jesus doesn't just come alongside them and explain the Scriptures to them that might just increase their perplexity and their puzzlement. He draws them out. And Jesus does that today as well, doesn't He? His compassion operates in a similar way. He draws out troubled hearts this morning through the Word of God. Why are you troubled? Why are you sad as you you walk the road of life? Why are your eyes looking downward? Why are you focused on the empty tomb? Why aren't you looking to the risen Lord? Why are you sad? What things have happened in your life that cause confusion and doubt and and cause you not to see the risen Lord? He comes alongside through His Word and through His people. He walks with troubled hearts patiently and compassionately. He knows the feelings and the emotions that pass through your mind and heart. And Jesus is gracious and compassionate and not leaving souls there. But He draws you out this morning so He can deal with you through His Word. To counsel you from His Word. He teaches believers here this morning on how to draw others out. There's practical wisdom here in our life together as children of God. He provides an example here to draw out others with their struggles in order to provide word-based remedies and solutions. We come alongside others who are struggling and we listen to them. We identify emotions. We ask questions that get them to open up. And then we listen further. And then we come with the Scriptures appropriate to the situation. Through the resurrected Christ, He calls us who are believers this morning to deal with troubled hearts, following in His footsteps with the compassion of Christ.
And so Jesus draws them out. He walks with them. Compassion. And then as Jesus draws them out, their misunderstanding becomes apparent what it is that they're really confused about. They're having a hard time making sense of the events that happened in Jerusalem, the death of Christ, the delivering up of Christ by the religious leaders of the day to to the Romans, to crucifixion. At the heart of it, they misunderstand who Christ was. In verse 18, they don't see Christ. They think He's a stranger. Are thou only a stranger in Jerusalem and hast not known the things which are come to pass? Are you the only stranger that doesn't know about these things? Well, Jesus knows, doesn't He? Jesus knows exactly what they're talking about. He's not a stranger to these events. He's the central figure. He lies right at the heart of them. So they took Jesus for a stranger. When in reality, he was the central figure. In verse 19, they continue. In response to Jesus' question, what things? The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. They viewed Jesus as a prophet, and rightly so. He came to fulfill Moses' statement from Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. He was a prophet unlike any other prophet. And yet, these travelers to Emmaus did not recognize him as the fulfillment of that particular scripture. Yes, he was mighty, Indeed, and word before God and all the people. They did not see him as the fulfillment of the prophet greater than Moses. In verse 20, they note the injustice of the chief priests and rulers in committing Jesus to death and crucifixion. They rightly place the blame of this upon the heads of the religious leaders and their fellow countrymen. What happened to Jesus? Why would the chief priests Deliver up one who is mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. One who is a prophet. Why would they stone him and kill him if he was legitimate? Why would they crucify him? They misunderstood who Jesus really was. In verse 21, They state now, but we trusted that it had been He which should have redeemed Israel. We trusted, we hoped that Jesus would fix Israel's problems. The word redemption there is not spiritual redemption, though it can include that, but is redeeming Israel from its political woes, from its moral woes. And of course, that comes through spiritual redemption through the work of Christ on the cross, but they had trusted in Christ to deliver Israel from the Romans. Just like they were delivered from Egypt, they had hoped that Jesus would deliver them from Rome. 
They had trusted in a political Jesus. And now their hopes died with the death of Christ. They could not think beyond the death of Christ. They misunderstood Jesus' purpose in dying. They were earthbound and man-centered in their hopes of redemption. They had forgotten the Scriptures. And now they think that Jesus had disappeared for good. They relate the news that the women had seen the empty sepulcher, the vision of angels and the news that he was alive, but they didn't believe it. They conclude their misunderstanding and bewilderment with these words, but him they saw not. And if they didn't see Jesus, then we're not going to believe it either. All these misunderstandings, all these questions, turmoil in their hearts, misunderstanding upon misunderstanding. My friend, what do you believe about Jesus this morning? How do you understand the work and person of Christ? Is there still confusion surrounding what He has come to do for you? For sinners like you? Maybe you are hoping and trusting in a political Jesus that He would deliver our nation from its woes. Maybe you hoped in Jesus, in a prosperity Jesus, who, if you just believed in him, would give you all the things that you need. He would give you health, he would give you wealth. Misplacing your hope in Jesus. Or maybe you had hoped in Jesus as the emotional Jesus, the one who would feed your emotions, the one who would build you up and give you all these these glorious experiences. You dictated to Him what you need and what you think you ought to experience, and it didn't happen. Your hopes are dashed this morning. Easter morning does not feel like Easter morning. The others might believe that Jesus is alive, but I haven't seen him. I can't believe him. Maybe you're here because you exhibit a so-called trust in the Jesus of tradition. You're here just because it's Easter. Or you're here because it's what you always do on a Sunday morning and come to church. And you place your hope in Jesus in this way, thinking that He's going to save you when He's ready. It doesn't require any responsibility on your part. And you think that Jesus will save you on the merits of the traditions that you follow and the works that you do. Maybe you understand some things about Jesus, but not other things. There's this incomplete knowledge. There's a hole in your knowledge, and it grieves you. Let 
Let us hear how Jesus addresses such misunderstandings this morning. How does he do that? He does it with mercy. As Jesus hears their misunderstandings, as he hears their dashed hopes, he responds with mercy. He responds, first of all, with the rebuke of his mercy. A rebuke of mercy for fools. Verse 25, then he said to them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. We need to understand here this morning that mercy doesn't always compliment us. Mercy doesn't always compliment us, does it? But mercy, first of all, points out our sin. The point of our unbelief. It gets right to the heart of the matter. O oh, fools and slow of heart to believe. What is a fool? Someone who is living mindlessly. Someone whose minds are disengaged. In this case, disengaged from the Scriptures, as Jesus points out. Lacking the intelligence. Not stupid, mind you, but lacking the intelligence of the Scriptures. When a scout goes out to gather intelligence, he's gathering the facts. He's, he's trying to put the whole picture of the, the enemy's movements and numbers and strength together. A fool is one who lacks the intelligence, who's not gathering all the facts, who's not putting all the facts together, even as they, they try to do that without going to the source. It's a word that describes the effects of the fall on the mind of humanity. On the face of it, we're all fools this morning. Even believers operate at times mindlessly. Our minds disengage with the Scriptures. We become unmoored, untethered from the Scriptures. And what happens then? A vortex of gloom and sadness and despair. Fools. Sin makes us that way. Makes us unmindful and foolish and prone to follow our own thoughts about Christ. Slow of heart points out the central problem of the heart of unbelief. It's slow in moving in the direction that it should. These travelers to Emmaus had the evidence. They had eyewitness evidence of these women who had come back to the disciples to tell them what they had seen and heard. These women had come back with the word. But these, men, these, these travelers conclude him they saw not. So if they didn't see Jesus, how can we believe? They were dull in their affections towards Christ. 
dulled by unbelief. And all of this is manifested in their lack of the understanding of the Scriptures. Jesus highlights this, doesn't he? O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. They're operating with a selective understanding of Scripture. We don't know what portions they had selected. Maybe they were focused on the Exodus narrative. The mighty acts of God in redeeming Israel from Egypt, and that's where they focused their attention, saying, surely Christ will deliver Israel from its troubles. They'd only understood parts of Scripture, intentionally left other parts alone, or just misinterpreted Scripture, read parts of what their narrative of redemption would look like for Israel, and so they had a stunted view of God's redemptive purposes. They were looking at the right here, right now. They weren't gathering that, that scriptural intelligence to, to give them the big picture. As Christ goes on to say, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? My friends, the resurrection is not about you, is what Jesus is saying this morning. It's not about you, it's about Christ. There were gaps in their understanding. They lived with sadness. William Hendricks, in his, in his commentary, remarks, These men missed the joy of salvation because they failed to pay enough attention to and to believe the word of prophecy in its entirety. So they missed the joy of salvation because they failed to pay enough attention to and to believe the word of prophecy in its entirety. And he goes on to say, those who neglect the study of God's Word do not realize how much they miss. No wonder they look glum. Those who neglect the study of God's Word do not realize how much they miss. Jesus rebukes unbelief. An unwillingness to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What do we learn from this this morning? That our understanding and communion with Jesus grows from our understanding of the Word of God and communion with Jesus in His Word. This rebuke of Jesus, O fools and slow of heart to believe, gets us out of ourselves, doesn't it? It gets us away from the grid of our own interpretation of the Scriptures. What we think Christ ought to be. And He says, come. Take off your filters. Take off your blinders. And read the Word for me. Search the Word for me. Search the Scriptures, for they are they which testify. They witness. They speak of me. Do you want to know who Jesus is? It's right here this morning in the Word of God. Do we want joy in our lives? 
in a living communion and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through the study of the Word of God. It's taking our minds and it's engaging our minds with Scripture. It's taking our hearts and praying for the Spirit's grace to illumine our hearts and to to bring them to believe what the Scriptures are teaching us, even this morning. It's to take ourselves in hand, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, and to, to bring ourselves to the Scriptures and to bring the Scriptures into us so that we have Christ. So that we have Christ. Not an experience, not prosperity, not political redemption, but Christ. That is what we need this morning, the risen Christ. That's who He wants us to see this morning. The one who was crucified, dead and buried, the one who sits on the right hand of God this morning, interceding for sinners. Let us not stop short of Christ. The only place where we apprehend Christ is in the Word. If we place anything, any descriptors before Christ, other than crucified and risen and glorified, we'll miss what the Scriptures are telling us. The rebuke of Christ's mercy hurts. Makes us unsettled and uncomfortable. But it gets us to the right place, doesn't it? Christ's mercy hurts, but it also heals. Does this not come close to what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 71? It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. So Christ afflicts us this morning with his rebuke, O fools, and slow of heart to believe. But he gets us to the place where we can see him for who he is. Notice what Jesus says as he addresses their misunderstanding about himself. He shows the must of mercy in verse 26. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? It was necessary. Christ had to suffer these things and to enter his glory. Jesus' focus here is on the whole Scriptures as they highlight the necessity of what Christ had to suffer and then enter into His glory, the resurrection being part of His glorification, being risen from the grave. Here already, Jesus is correcting their assumptions of what He had come to do. It was mercy's must that Jesus had to suffer and die and then enter His glory. His resurrection is part of mercy's must and it requires our faith. requires our faith. His death and resurrection are part of the same whole. To redeem sinners, they belong together. 
The scripture is witness of this. It's true for us this morning as well, isn't it? The death and resurrection of Christ go hand in hand. There's a divine necessity about these acts of Christ that shouldn't surprise or puzzle us. And if this is the must of mercy, then we must believe these things about Christ. This is the apostolic message again and again and again. Christ was crucified, dead, and buried. This is what we're called to believe. This is the message of Jesus. I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me shall never die, and he that believeth on me shall have everlasting life. Do you believe this? That is the fundamental question this morning. So Jesus comes and he helps us put it all together to give us the big picture. He had to suffer. He had to die. He had to rise again in order to fulfill the Scriptures. In order to secure redemption for sinners like you and me this morning, this was required in order for mercy to be mercy. And then Jesus takes them into his own Bible class. Verse 27, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You know, in reading literature, people will often tell you that you have to read yourself into the story. Read your own experience into the story in order to really get what the story is about. In a sense, we did that this morning, didn't we, as we looked at all the responses of the disciples and of the women We saw ourselves reflected in their responses and their reactions. But how do we read the Scriptures to get that resurrection joy that Jesus gives to His disciples? Notice how Jesus teaches the Scriptures. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. He wasn't inviting the travelers to Emmaus to read themselves into the story. There's an element of legitimacy about doing that, but that's not what the focus is in reading the Scriptures. Jesus takes them to the prophets, all the Scriptures, beginning at Moses, The entirety of the Old Testament witnesses to who Christ is and what He's come to do. Why does He rebuke so strongly? Because these travelers to Emmaus had the Scriptures. The Jewish people had the Scriptures. They knew what the Scriptures said about Christ. And so Jesus patiently teaches them. Every section of the Old Testament Scripture, he draws the lines to himself. The books of Moses. 
Children, you know what they are, don't you? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. How does Jesus draw the lines there to himself? The first promise of the gospel. The seed of the woman. That's me. The Abrahamic promise. Genesis 12 and 17. The seed that is going to bless all nations. That's me. All the laws. The laws of Moses. The Ten Commandments. They point to Jesus as the fulfillment of them. It's me. All the sacrifices. The temple. The tabernacle. Jesus says, it's, it's me. The provision for a king in Deuteronomy. Jesus says, it's me. The high priest. It's me. The prophet, greater than Moses, that's me. The greater Joshua, that's me. The judges and all their imperfections point to the greater judge, that's me. The man after God's own heart, David, that's me. The Psalms that prophesy of me, it's me. Wisdom from Proverbs, it's me. The suffering servant of Isaiah and all that the prophets have prophesied of the Messiah, it's me. Jesus engages their minds with the Scriptures. He moves their wills to believe what He's teaching them. He reignites in their hearts a flame of love and zeal and joy for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what He does for us this morning. He brings us right back to the Scriptures to regulate our thoughts, to engage our minds, to to regulate our emotions and our feelings about Christ and how we relate to Him. There's no life apart from reading the Scriptures for Christ. All of them. How do you approach the Scriptures? Do you read them to find Christ? Or to evoke a feeling and emotion or to find something to justify how you think Christ should work in a particular way or place? Spiritually, politically, or otherwise. Do we let the Scriptures clear away the fog of our foolishness, our, our mindlessness, and our unwillingness to believe so that we see only Christ? And commune with Him in His Word. It's mercy, isn't it? It's mercy that Christ brings these travelers back to the Word. Brings us back to the Word. The only foundation upon which we can stand and find Christ. This is where He has revealed Himself. In His Word. 
the revelation of Christ's mercy. And then we see the readiness of Christ's mercy. He's not finished with these fools. He's not finished with us. They continue walking as the sun sets. These travelers encourage Jesus to to go with them to their home in verse 28 and 9. They drew nigh into the village whither they went. He made as though he would have gone further, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. They demonstrate hospitality, but there's something about this stranger that compels these travelers to have Jesus come to their home. The word there for constrain seems that they almost forcibly urge Jesus to come to their home. There's a connection with him that can't be denied. They want to continue in his Bible class. What do we read? Jesus went in to tarry, to rest with them. Mercy is ready to be compelled to dwell with fools who desire to know more. Mercy is ready to be compelled to dwell with fools who desire to know more. With the slow of heart who need their wills bent and their affections rekindled for Christ. Are you constraining Jesus to tarry with you this morning? He's ready to dwell with fools like you and me. That's the beauty of his mercy, isn't it? Eager to fill out our knowledge. Eager to take our wills and to mold them and shape them to follow him. To turn away from sin. To leave it all behind. And to pursue Christ for who He is. He's eager to rekindle the flame of affection and love for Him. No matter how long ago that affection and flame have have died out. The bruised reed He will not break and the smoking flax He will not quench. He will bring forth judgment unto truth. Don't let him slip away because of your sin, because of your misunderstandings, because of your doubts and unbelief. He's here in his word this morning. He stands once more in the midst of the church for which he has bled and died and rose again. Mercy will come in and dwell with us. And how does Jesus dwell with fools and slow of heart to believe? He breaks bread with them and their eyes are opened to the reality of who he is. Came to pass. As he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and break and gave to them. Their eyes were opened and they knew him. They perceived that it was Jesus. And then he vanished out of their sight. Some see the reflection of the Lord's Supper in these words, be that as it may. What Jesus is doing here further underscores his mercy to these disciples. Notice what Jesus does in the home of these men, these travelers. Some of you might be saying, well, how how can you know if these are men? It's a common assumption that they're men, even though it doesn't say that, but they're just travelers 
But he's the guest in their home. He's the guest who has turned host at the meal. As he's doing these actions, their eyes are open and they knew him. Whether it was the nail prints in his hands that they saw, or the familiarity of his voice, or of his actions, they knew him. They recognize him and then Jesus vanishes. It's then that their hearts are quickened through the words and actions of Jesus. They said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way? While he opened to us the scriptures? Their physical sight was withheld, was restrained powerfully, divinely by Jesus. He deals with their spiritual perception and then their eyes are opened as he breaks the bread with them. The entrance of the word of God gives light and heat gives light to the mind and heat to the heart. It's the word that calms troubled hearts and renews the perspective of God's saving work in Christ. The readiness of the mercy of Christ to show Himself to troubled hearts. And finally and lastly, the response to Christ's mercy. These disciples rush back to Jerusalem where the eleven were and others with them, some seven miles from Jerusalem at night. They're ready to risk the dangers of the nighttime road and go back. As they enter into the room with the eleven and the others gathered with them, what do they hear? The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. Well, that's good news. The Lord has appeared to Simon independently to restore him. The one who was backslidden, the one who denied Christ, that's good news. There's joy over over one sinner who repents in heaven. He's appeared to Simon. Their word in Simon's experience corresponds with what these disciples from Emmaus tell them. They told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking bread. Their conversation changes, doesn't it, as they, from, from when they travel from Jerusalem to when they travel back to Jerusalem. Now they're standing on the Scriptures. It's just as Jesus has said, and we saw Him too. Their response was to go and tell what happened. They could not sit on this transformation that Jesus had worked in them through the Word and the breaking of bread. They came from Jerusalem with sadness. They go back to Jerusalem with joy. And what is it that transformed their perspective? It was the Word of God as Christ taught them. They went from being fools in their own understanding to being wise in the word concerning Christ and who he was. They went from internal conversation between the two of them with gloomy hearts to sharing the good news with the other disciples and beyond with joy. What is going to shape your response this morning? to the news that Christ is risen. I pray that it is the Word of God and the Word of God alone 
that lead you to see Christ for who he is. Ought not Christ to have suffered and to enter into his glory? This word testifies of Christ. It brings you to Christ and it brings Christ into you. He is risen. He's risen indeed, just as he said. Surely this is a resurrection message for fools. Amen. Lord, what a message it is. That death could not hold thee. Thou art risen again to give life. Thou hast given thy word of life to give light to our minds, to give willingness to our hearts, to renew our affections and our, our emotions for thee. So long as we gaze upon Christ and Him alone. There's no greater message, Lord, that we can carry from this place this morning than that Christ is risen again according to the Scriptures. It's not our imagination. But it is the objective truth of Thy Word that tells us so. And so we are called to believe for the very first time or again thou art risen indeed. And it is that message. It is thee, the Christ, who gives that joy as we gaze upon thee. Lord, help us not to pursue thee for the joy Help us not to pursue Thee for the experience. But help us to pursue Thee because of who Thou art. And that alone. For Thou art worthy. We ask all this now, asking Thee to bless us as we gather with families. As we remember Thy work even as we gather with our families, we remember those who cannot gather with our families, those who are in places of care, those who are shut in, who cannot go out, who cannot receive visitors today. Lord, enter through those doors as that was done in a glorified, resurrected body. Visit them with thy Holy Spirit. Fill their hearts with all joy in believing, believing in Christ. Lord, hear us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.